This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Johnny F. Bassett may have been destined to be a GOAT in North American sports. As a Canadian, his first sport was, naturally, hockey. And he was quite good. Good enough to become the youngest goalie ever on the Upper Canada College team in 1954. At 15 years old, he was offered a contract by the Toronto Maple Leafs to play on their developmental team, the Marlies. Later that year, Bassett, along with Peter Barnard, won the Canadian Open Junior Doubles Tennis Championship, and with Anne Barclay, won the Mixed Doubles Tournament. In 1955, Bassett won the Junior Singles Championship at the Canadian Open. A reporter for the Toronto Star called Bassett, quote, one of the best prospects in Canadian tennis, unquote. Two years later, Bassett ranked number two among Canadian tennis players and got an invite to the U.S. Open while also the starting quarterback for Upper Canada College. Bassett suffered a knee injury while quarterbacking in 1957, but hardly one of career-ending proportions. Nevertheless, Bassett was done. His father insisted that Johnny go into the family business of mass media after graduating college. Bassett Sr. had personally torn up the Maple Leafs contract offered to Johnny in front of team president Con Smythe, telling the hockey legend to, quote, leave my son alone, unquote. At the age of 20, Bassett got ready to start work at the Toronto Telegraph, the newspaper which founded the Bassett Media Conglomerate, but by the end of the 60s, he'd prove a riff on the old adage, you can take the boy out of sports, but you can't take the sports out of the boy. In realizing that sports was an indelible part of culture, Johnny Bassett became known as a visionary on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border, a consummate entertainer who became indelibly associated with expansion leagues in two sports. Johnny Bassett was a sports franchise owner, and not just any franchise owner either. Bassett was a franchise owner in rogue professional sports leagues. Johnny F. Bassett was a maverick. And in terms of bringing sheer entertainment to 20th century North American sports, he can well be considered a GOAT. My name is Oz Davis, and this is Truly the Goats, sports history as told through its superstars. When speaking of Johnny F. Bassett, contemporaries would often reference the legendary 19th century showman P.T. Barnum. His own brother once called him the Canadian Barnum. The recently published biography entitled Life and Teams of Johnny F. Bassett also begins by contextualizing this maverick showman with the story of Barnum in brief. The author of that biography is Dennis Crawford. Dennis provided audio excerpts of The Life and Teams to Truly the Goats, which you'll be hearing later in this episode. Dennis also talked with me about Bassett and what he calls Bassett's successful failures. Naturally, I wanted to ask about Barnum. You compare and contrast in your book Bassett and P.T. Barnum. Now, of course, this is a, an old comparison. I mean, even in the book, you quote Bassett's son as saying that people called him the Canadian Barnum. What's that comparison in brief? Well, Barnum has a bit of a mythology about him. Uh, it's one of those things where it's apocryphal, and I don't know that it's accurate that he really did say there's a sucker born every minute. Um, but he did sell humbug. He sold 
spectacle. Um, you know, whether you're talking about uh, claiming that Josie Heth was a 118-year-old nursemaid of George Washington, he put her on display, or any of the amazing things he put in the American uh, Museum, he was selling an experience to his audience and leaving it up to you to determine whether or not it was it was factual. And Bassett, in the beginning of his career, was viewed as a Barnum-esque figure. I found that a little unfair in that he wasn't selling humbug. He wasn't conning people, uh, so to speak, the way that Barnum could. But he was trying to sell sports as spectacle. He felt that the um, ticket buyer deserved more than just a game for the price of their admission. You know, they deserved a full sensory experience. In the classic style of the business fable, Johnny Bassett started near the bottom of his father's media empire and worked his way up, albeit surely at far greater speeds than his unrelated colleagues. He started as a beat writer for the Toronto Telegram newspaper and went to work for CFTO, founded by his father as the first privately owned TV network in Canada. And after about a year and a half, he was re-employed at the Telegram as assistant editor, whereupon he set out to attract more of what we'd call today the teen demographic. He went on to produce a TV show called After Four, described in shorthand as a Canadian answer to American bandstand. In 1969, he financed the Toronto production of Hair. In 1971, he produced hockey-themed films Face Off and Paperback Hero. But while many of these ventures caused at least a slight kerfuffle among Toronto's more conservative elements, Johnny Bassett had yet to truly run afoul of political power. But after the Toronto Telegram-sponsored race on a closed track in 1967, and Quebec province hosted a street race in the area between Quebec City and Montreal in 1968, Bassett got the first of his big ideas about revolutionizing sports entertainment. Details of the proposed raceway through Toronto's CNE exhibition grounds were officially unveiled yesterday by Ontario Minister of Tourism and Information, James Auld. Plans call for a 2.3-mile circuit with a mile straight on Lakeshore Boulevard and the start-slash-finish line inside the grandstand. John Bassett Jr., president of Lakeshore Raceway, and general manager Don Hunt hope to stage the Telegram Trophy Indy Race there and the Canadian Grand Prix there next year. Joe Bonnier, president of the Grand Prix Drivers Association, which has developed new power in improving circuits from a safety viewpoint, called the setting ideal. Chris Allen, Montreal Gazette, September 17, 1968. The Board of Control approved plans Thursday for a Grand Prix auto racetrack at the Canadian National Exhibition Grounds. The proposal, made by Lakeshore Auto Raceway Holdings Limited of Toronto, now goes before the city's Parks Committee for debate. John F. Bassett, president of Lakeshore Raceway, told the board revenue from rental and concessions would bring the CNE $85,000 or more annually if the races were allowed. The company said it would also install special safety features on Lakeshore Boulevard and predicted that two major race events will attract tourists from North America and Europe. Canadian Press Wire Service, September 18, 1968. Bassett's first foray into the world of professional sports management was his sort of attempt to organize an IndyCar race 
within Toronto city limits, including laps, I guess, around the Toronto Argonaut Stadium. Tell us in brief how that went. It did not go well. <laughs> it was Bassett's, I think it was Bassett's first introduction to the labyrinthine nature of civic politics in Toronto at that time. Um, Ontario had built a, a wonderful facility just outside of the city limits called Mo Sports, where um, IndyCar races uh, were being held. But Bassett saw a Grand Prix-style race held in Montreal and decided, I want something like that for the city of Toronto. You know, Toronto is a, a barren sports landscape when the Leafs are not playing. You know, this is in the 60s, so you have Montreal, I'm sorry, Toronto Maple Leaf hockey, you got the Argonauts, and then Bassett says, you have seven months of nothing else. And so I, he wanted to bring spectacle to the lakeshore. So he worked with uh, various friends of his. They formed a small industry called Lakeshore Racing, and he established a two and a half mile serpentine court course uh, right along the lakeshore of Toronto, including having not just going around Exhibition Stadium, but having the cars race over the playing surface of Exhibition Stadium. And many of his uh, fellow citizens of Toronto were appalled by this because you're going to take away our parklands and you're going to have this loud auto race just down the road from people's houses and you're contravening the Lord's Day. And and Bassett's really trying his best to satisfy everything, saying, oh, oh no, we're going to hold it later in the day. I'm not going to stop people from getting to church on time. Um, it's completely safe. It's only this one day of the year. We're going to be able to bring 250,000 people here. It'll be a great show. And um, he just slowly loses each battle going forward. And I think he becomes relatively chastened by the experience. Plans for a Grand Prix-style auto raceway at the Canadian National Exhibition Grounds have been dropped. John F. Bassett, president of Lakeshore Auto Raceway Holdings Limited said today in a letter to Chairman William Allen of Metropolitan Toronto that lack of provincial consent has left the venture open to attack in the courts. Mr. Bassett's letter said the raceway company, quote, might rightly be accused of acting in bad faith were we to invite citizens of Metropolitan Toronto to participate in the financing of a venture which might be successfully attacked in the courts, unquote. Canadian Press, February 27, 1969. It wasn't long before Bassett found another opportunity in his nation's beloved sport of hockey with a team called the Ottawa Nationals in a daring new rogue league called the World Hockey Association. Attendance at the 10,500-seat Civic Center Arena was sparse at best. When the Nationals did begin drawing crowds during a playoff push, team owners Doug Michael and Nick Trivovich began to dispute with their landlords over future use of the arena. Michael and Trivovich saw their team locked out of the arena by their landlords when neither side could reach an agreement. This action resulted in a most unusual circumstance. The Nationals made the playoffs, but were forced to play their playoff games at Maple Leaf Garden, an arena 200 miles away. These home games 
were far from convenient for the national players, not to mention out of reach of their few fans. The road-weary Nationals mustered slight resistance as they were routed in the playoffs by the New England Whalers four games to one. Johnny F. Bassett attended the Nationals Toronto playoff games and became enamored with the WHA. A self-proclaimed creative entrepreneur, Bassett was of a like mind with the new hockey league. In addition to bringing professional hockey to areas long ignored by the NHL, the WHA played a freewheeling style of hockey that relied more on speed and skill than brute force and fighting. While the WHA's style of hockey may not have appealed to hockey purists, for an idealist like Bassett, it was just the type of sport he could get into. To paraphrase the catchphrase of another 20th century sports franchise owner, Bassett liked the game so much, he bought the team. He announced plans to relocate the team in Toronto, where he figured two professional hockey teams could coexist in Canada's biggest city. Would you consider his tenure in that league a success or a failure? I would consider him to be like Apollo 13 in that he was a successful failure. Mm. Financially, uh, he took quite a beating, although he became whole at the end. When the NHL and WHA merged, those teams that were not invited along did receive financial settlements. And, and those settlements helped him not only pay off the debts he accumulated with the Toros and Bulls, but also those he was still carrying over from his World Football League adventure. Now, the reason why I say successful as opposed to failure is because he did prove some very important points. He did prove that even in Toronto, the spiritual center of hockey in English-speaking Canada, it would support a second team. Um, attendance wasn't really a problem. He was, he was getting close to 10,000 uh, per game in Toronto. Uh, the issue was not being able to find an arena of his own. Um, he was willing to put money into the CNE Center. He was willing to work with uh, developers to try and find a suitable place in Toronto so that the Toros could have a home of their own because paying an exorbitant amount of rent to Harold Ballard to play at Maple Leaf Gardens was just a crushing commitment that over time drove him out of the city. So, his his belief that the city could support two teams was bearing out. It's the infrastructure of the city couldn't support two teams at that time. The fan base could. And he was also accurate in his belief that a European style of play would appeal. Uh, the NHL at that time was uh, very limited athletically said the man who cannot skate but it was still a lot of clutching and grabbing and the broad street bullies and physical intimidation and neutral zone traps but um the WHA really wanted a free-flowing style and also invited a lot of European players to come and play um European players were looked down upon at the time by the NHL as being 
too finesse oriented and not physical enough. And Bassett reaches out and brings Vaclav Nedimansky and Richard Farda from Czechoslovakia. He helps them defect uh, to Canada to bring their style of play. The Toros cash a check. <laughs> Václav Nedimansky's defection at flight to Canada add up to a smoothly executed international caper which took months to plan. That seems the inescapable conclusion from information already public and additional material pieced together Thursday by Southern News Services. The main cogs in the caper, aside from the Starry Center himself, interviews indicate, were Toronto Toro's general manager Buck Hool and, to an unknown degree, the government of Canada. Ottawa maintains it learned of Nenomansky's desire to come here only late last week when he applied for landed immigrant status at the Canadian Immigration Office in Bern, Switzerland. The federal government denies unequivocally any, quote, previous collusion, unquote, of, quote, complicity, unquote, in the matter. A source close to the club said negotiations and planning to get the 30-year-old Metamansky and his family to Canada had been, quote, going on for several months. The government was involved. This is not something you can do without the government's knowledge, George Groth editor of the Toronto Sun reported Thursday. Once the visa application was processed, the Nenomansky that Hool flew Air Canada from Zurich to Montreal, where the family was granted landed immigrant status. They then continued to Toronto to be met by Toro President John F. Bassett and club chairman John Craig Eaton. Later, AFP News Service said that Richard Farda, another Czech player, had defected to Canada. The left winger is expected to play with the Toros. Bob Cohen, Southern News Service, July 19, 1974. He helps open up the Canadian juniors. The NHL had an agreement where they would not sign these 16 to 20 year old Canadian junior players. Um, it was actually Colleen Howe, uh, Gordy Howe's wife, who found a, uh, a loophole that allowed Marty and Mark Howe to play for the Houston Arrows, and once that loophole was opened, Bassett dove through with both feet and was signing as many of members of the Toronto Marlboros, the, the junior team, the very popular junior team in uh, Toronto, also known as the Marlies, you know, getting Wayne Dillon to sign. Wayne Dillon, people had been dreaming about what it would be like when Wayne Dillon would finally put on a maple leaf sweater and Johnny Bassett swoops in and puts a Toro sweater on him instead. And Dillon ends up being a very productive player at an amazingly young age. So, so Bassett is successful in that regard and he moves to Birmingham and people are laughing. It's how can you move to Birmingham? How are you going to sell hockey? in the seat of the Confederacy of all places. The Atlanta Flames are struggling. They'll eventually move to Calgary. You cannot sell hockey to this audience, and Bassett just accepts it as a personal challenge. As was predicted in yesterday's column, the Toros announced their intention to move out of Toronto Wednesday afternoon. That makes the score NHL 8, WHA 0. Those figures represent the number of cities in which the World Hockey Association has attempted to go head-to-head -head against an existing National Hockey League team and has either been forced to move the team or fold it. 
all of which gives considerable credence to the claim of NHL President Clarence Campbell when he says, we've won the war with the WHA. The Toros had been the last holdouts of the direct confrontation following the fold-up of the Minnesota Fighting Saints earlier this season. But even Bassett, of whom Toronto star columnist Mitt Dunnett once said, quote, if he goes on losing money at this rate, he might run out of money in 100 years, unquote, threw in the towel. Bob Malore, Ottawa Citizen, May 9, 1976. And within two years, you've got 12,000 people with very thick southern accents going, that's icing! Or, you know, chanting defense. Johnny Bassett, uh, his son, also John Bassett, was claiming this is the first time he's ever gone to a hockey game and heard people chanting defense like they were at a Crimson Tide game. And so uh, Bassett proves that he's right again. The, the failure is that Bassett's proving that he's right alienates him from many of the powers that be in the NHL, particularly Harold Ballard, who was the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs. He, he took market share away from Harold Ballard. And you don't do that to Harold Ballard. You don't take money out of his pocket and expect to have a long and fruitful life in hockey. And so Bassett's not invited to join the merged leagues. So in that way, it's a failure because Bassett doesn't get the ultimate prize of an NHL franchise. But I'm thinking as a romantic and as somebody who loves these kinds of stories, he was really successful because now the NHL is in the South. And 18-year-olds and Europeans do regularly play in the NHL. And so it's a successful failure. The Birmingham Bulls hockey team will become part of the National Hockey League. In a proposed merger Friday of the NHL and World Hockey Association, team owner said, We're extremely happy, and we will make applications, said John Bassett, Jr., majority owner of the Bulls. The Bulls previously have played hockey in the WHA. Associated Press, June 25, 1977. Such a move never did come to pass, and in the quote-unquote merger of the NHL and WHA, NHL executives demanded that those franchises located in cities with extant NHL markets be closed, while four teams were subsumed by the NHL. The Edmonton Oilers, Quebec Nordiques, the Winnipeg Jets, and the renamed Hartford Whalers. Only the Cincinnati Stingers and Birmingham Bulls were excluded from either option and bought out. Of course, Bassett had other enterprises going. About halfway through his run with the Toros Coombe Bulls franchise, he had been enticed into another runner sports league. Tonight, live and in color, TBS presents the new game in town, the World Football League. Hi, I'm Earl Harmon, and welcome to the new game in town. The World Football League was started by Gary Davidson, who's also been on the ground level of developing the American Basketball Association and the WHA. Bassett fairly well jumped at the chance to own a team in a sport which, thanks to television, was rapidly becoming the number one watch sport in all of North America. And as with WHA, he found himself again testing the principle of we can all make a little money here against an existing big league level franchise. Bassett didn't believe his Toronto Northmen were in direct or even indirect competition with the Canadian Football League's then flagship team, the Toronto Argonauts. After all, the WFL played four-down football on a field with U.S. football dimensions and on Tuesdays and Wednesdays to boot. 
but some people did not agree. Jake Goddard, Commissioner of the Canadian Football League, has appealed to members of Parliament to ensure that the league is not damaged by the intrusion of American interests. In a letter to all MPs dated April 10th and delivered Tuesday night, Mr. Gadar said that while the CFL is not opposed to World Football League franchise in Toronto, it is concerned about the possible effects on Canadian football. The bill, announced last Wednesday, is aimed specifically at the WFL's Toronto Northmen, owned by John F. Bassett. Mr. Gadar said in his letter that the CFL fears the Northmen, if permitted to play in Toronto, gradually will draw support away from the Toronto Argonauts of the CFL. He said this, quote, most certainly would trigger a chain reaction, which would probably lead to the demise of the Canadian Football League, unquote. Canadian Press, April 17, 1974. The Canadian Football League found a powerful ally in their battle with Johnny F. Bassett, the Canadian federal government. Traditionally, Canada's provincial governments have a great deal of devolved power, but Trudeau was in the mold of prime ministers who aggressively sought to maximize the federal government's profile and power as a unifying factor in a somewhat decentralized, hybridized nation. Trudeau's vision was that Ottawa, seat of the federal government, could put forth policies that would both differentiate Canada from the United States and give Canadians their own cultural institutions around which to rally and upon which to build a more robust sense of nationhood. Two examples were the National Health Insurance Plan and close diplomatic relations with Fidel Castro's Cuba, both of which frustrated American officials. A third would be Canadian football. One national politician particularly carried the banner for upholding Canadian football at the expense of Bassett, Mark Lalonde. Lalonde was the Liberal government's Minister of National Health and Welfare in 1973. Like many Canadian politicians and leaders of the time, Lalonde viewed the increasing Americanization of his country's culture with a wary eye. Quoting Lalonde, if one defines culture very widely as being the identity of a country, then for many Canadians, the real competition should be between Canadian teams. You can say that the fact there is a Canadian Football League constituted of Canadian teams is important to the many citizens who follow this. It is the only professional sport which is exclusively Canadian with its own unique set of rules. Did Canadian politicians, did the national government have an argument vis-a-vis -vis the Toronto Northmen versus the CFL? The Canadian government had a point to a degree in that the CFL was a very carefully balanced structure. The CFL uh, at one time uh, up until I'd say the late 1950s was on par with the National Football League. They often competed uh, for the same players. And uh, sometimes when an NFL player would get tired of their contract, uh, they would play it out and jump to Canada. And some Canadian players would do the same thing. And so there was a level of equity between the two leagues. And they had a 
you know, they even crafted a um, non-aggression pact during that time when Sam the Rifle Echeverry, it looked like he was going to leave the Canadian League and go play for the Chicago Cardinals. And that was setting off shockwaves. We get to the 1960s. Pete Rozelle figures out television. We have the merger of the AFL and NFL. The Super Bowl becomes an unofficial national holiday. All of a sudden, NFL is viewed as being a far superior league, and American-style football is viewed as being a very, very superior style um, to the point that at one time the Canadian Rugby Union refused to allow forward passes because it would make us look too American. <laughs> so when you get to the 70s and Bassett is unveiling the Toronto Northmen who are going to play an American style of football and he has signed three members of the back-to-back -back Super Bowl champion Dolphins right. to play for this franchise, a lot of teams in Canada are very worried. Because as I mentioned, there's a very special balance. The, the teams that are largely in the western provinces, Calgary and the British Columbia Lions and Minton, are largely non-profit organizations, very similar to the Green Bay Packers. Whereas you get the teams in the eastern provinces, the Toronto Argonauts and the Montreal Alouettes, they're for-profit in major media centers, and the money that they make is split evenly with the teams out west. It was a process called gate equalization. And if Toronto's Argonauts are now going to compete with an American-style football team, the CFL is scared that that's going to impact the amount of money the Argonauts make per year. And if the Argonauts make less money, the CFL makes less money. And so... There's a financial stake there. Um, Mark Lalonde, uh, Pierre Trudeau's Minister of Health and Welfare, also argues that because Canadian football is the only sport played in Canada that is uniquely Canadian, that it needs to be protected. And so he and several members of Parliament, mostly representing the, the, the provinces in which there are the nonprofit CFL teams, craft a bill called the Canadian Football League Act, which was actually going to outlaw American-style football. And it was strictly to prevent Johnny Bassett and his team from establishing a foothold in Toronto. If the Toronto Argonauts Football Club can fend off the effects of the WFL team in Toronto by beating it on the field on merit, the Northmen lose only money, said Mr. Goddard. However, if the contrary is the case, the Canadian clubs would lose just as much or more money, but more importantly, they will have lost 100 years of Canadian sporting tradition. Kadar said the CFL is a unique form of Canadian sport because it constitutionally requires its teams to be spread across the country and allows cities with diverse population and economic potential to compete on an equal footing. Canadian Press, April 17, 1974. The so-called Canadian Football Act never passed Parliament. Regardless, Bassett decided to take his American football and head south. The first down for the Toronto Northmen of the World Football League will be in the 51,000-seat Memorial Stadium in Memphis, Tennessee. 
John F. Bassett, president of the Northmen, said Monday night in an interview that he had abandoned plans to play in Toronto's C&E Stadium as soon as he was informed that the City Parks Commission in Memphis voted to lease their stadium to his team. We'll be moving the franchise the moment the lease is formally signed, said Bassett. The owners of the Northmen, whose name will most likely be changed to the Southmen, will be joined in Memphis by a group headed by country singing star Charlie Rich as partners. If you happen to see the most beautiful girl that walked out on me, tell her I'm sorry. Tell her I need my baby. Oh, won't you tell her that I love her? Oh, hey. George. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Bassett was bitter about legislation introduced by Health and Welfare Minister Mark Lalonde designed to bar WFL teams from Canada. The Northmen may leave, but I am sure there will be others WFL that will eventually come into Canada, Bassett said. If an election is called, I hope the people of Toronto will remember that Lalonde denied them football of a superior quality. As for reading Canadian Football League teams, including the Toronto Argonauts, Bassett said, quote, the gloves are off now. Lalonde went to every extent to protect the CFL, but as far as I am concerned, that game is over. I would never return this team to Canada. Canadian Press, May 7, 1974. Like Birmingham, Memphis had gained a reputation in the 1970s as a sort of sports test market. Though both had been considered by the NFL for an expansion franchise in 1976, those new NFL teams were placed in Seattle and Tampa instead. So, both southern cities were more than happy to host WFL teams. The Memphis Southmen enjoyed reasonable success in 1974, among the league's better attendance draws while going 17-3 and in the regular season. But only about 5,000 turned out for their semifinal playoff game in late November. But for many reasons, WFL teams, and therefore the league in general, were hemorrhaging money. The long-awaited trio of Miami Dolphins, Paul Warfield, Larry Zonka, and Jim Kick, finally came to Memphis for 1975, but the league closed up shop before a second championship game could be held. Bassett wasn't quite ready to give up on Memphis football, however. Perhaps thinking of the NBA-ABA merger, the NFL-AFL merger, or even the way the NFL had subsumed the Cleveland Browns, Baltimore Colts, and San Francisco 49ers from the All-American Football Conference before 1950 season, he took his case to the commissioner's office and NFL team owner. NFL officials and Memphis leaders will meet after the Super Bowl to discuss the city's role in league expansion. Bank official William H. Matthews said he telephoned Jim Kensel, executive director of the NFL, and requested the meeting. The NFL's expansion committee met Wednesday with Memphis Southman President John Bassett and unofficially rejected Memphis and Birmingham applications for an expansion franchise. Team officials have decided to take their application efforts to the 26 NFL owners. The rejection followed a season ticket drive that netted 43,322 pledges. Associated Press, December 20, 1975. Alas, this last-ditch effort didn't work, and Tennessee, if not Memphis, would have to wait for a home NFL team until 1997 when the Houston Oilers relocated to Nashville. With his Birmingham Bulls bought out by the NHL and his Memphis Southmen extinct along with the rest of the WFL, Johnny Bassett spent the early 1980s in Florida. This was no retirement. 
Bassett filled his time by doing stuff like building the Players Club, condominium in the Florida Keys based on tenants, complete down to the pros that live there, such as Yannick Noah. Plus, his daughter Carling Bassett was rising in the tennis ranks with the help of a tutor based there. Johnny naturally had the opposite reaction to his child's preoccupation as his father had with him. And he was living the 80s highlight, hobnobbing celebrity investors and tennis pros at an elite condo on the Gulf of Mexico, while his daughter steadily rises to become a top 10 professional tennis player herself. He might have thought he'd never invest heavily in another pro sports league again. But then came the most tantalizing siren song yet. The USFL, where football is still a game. Bassett was 42 years old and enjoying every minute of being Carling Bassett's father when David Dixon met with him in the spring of 1981. Bassett was the best owner in the WFL and arguably in the WHA too, but he was not keen on being the standard bearer for yet another underfinanced, poorly run sports league. Quoting Bassett on the initial meeting, I bought Dixon lunch and told him he was crazy. Bassett felt better after meeting with Dixon again and carefully reading over the new league's prospectus. Bassett allowed himself to dream again of establishing a model sports franchise, this time incorporating all the lessons learned from his past failures. Bassett felt a sense of confidence in the USFL that the WFL and WHA never provided. A key component was Dixon's stressing of fiscal responsibility and salaries and having a league-wide program to assist struggling owners. Bassett had reached deep into his own pockets to assist his WFL and WHA peers and knew he could not do so again. Quoting his son John C. Bassett, my dad used to joke that in the WFL days, he was the richest owner, but in the USFL days, he was the poorest. My understanding is that he was asked to come in as the same voice of someone who had been through all of this before, who would show some guidance and provide expertise on not overspending money. For those who weren't alive during the 1980s, much of the cultural experience at that time is incomprehensible. Like having just three or four TV networks, none of which were 24 hours. Like the lack of internet, Cold War, the near total non-existence of foreigners in the NHL, especially the NBA, and the excitement that the USFL generated among football fans. To this day, the USFL enjoys a popularity within the sports history geek crowd that few three-year adventures of any sort can boast. Unlike the league that would come later, like the XFL or the United Football League or the, well, the XFL 2020, the USFL drafted NFL-quality players and featured a showmanship offered explicitly in response to the No Fun League. Of course, even beyond the fact that Hall of Famers like Steve Young, Jim Kelly, Reggie White, Gary Zimmerman, and Doug Flutie made their professional debut in the USFL, the league's media presence and reputation were overshadowed, swamped even, by an owner with whom Bassett was consistently at loggerheads about the league's long-term business plan. 
Mr. Donald Trump, who is the New Jersey General's owner. Donald Trump. Donald Trump, who owns the New Jersey Generals. The main man, Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Is Donald the Trump, who owns Donald the New Jersey Trump. Generals is, of the USFL the and represented the owner, Donald answered Trump. this question. The New Jersey Generals of the USFL and represented the owner. Donald Trump. Mr. Donald Trump. It's been really fabulous. We're very happy. The effect of Donald Trump on the USFL, and perhaps Bassett himself, cannot be underestimated. And I'm not talking the signing of Herschel Walker and incumbent Heisman Trophy winner Doug Flutie, but rather the path Trump, by sheer force of will, self-assurance, and bloviation, recklessly set the entire league on the path to oblivion. Trump's goal with the New Jersey Generals and the USFL, depending on the source and the mood in which said source happened to catch Trump, was either to force a WHA-style merger with the NFL or to get the big league to subsume some USFL teams, including, somehow, his New Jersey general. Particularly enamored with Trump's leadership was veteran NFL coach George Allen, co-owner-slash-chairman-slash-head coach of the USFL Chicago Blitz. Allen was pretty much in step with Trump from day one, confident in the general's owner's leadership. Perhaps made lightheaded by his oxygen-sucking qualities, or just overwhelmed by the presence of the league's only true celebrity majority owner, nearly all the USFL owners eventually sided with Trump and his half-baked plans and switched their season from spring to fall, so as to directly take on the NFL for viewers and broadcast advertising. And if you think this sounds like a financial suicide mission now, I can tell you we pretty much felt the same way in the 1980s. Also seeing it this way was Bassett. With experience in going head-to-head with established sports franchises was, for once, of a more conservative viewpoint than his peers in rogue league building. His Toros had been denied an arena, the Toronto North Bend elicited legislative action, and in this case, his league was overtly declaring its intention to compete for players and audience. There's been a million ways to talk about this. There's, there's been a million things said about this. So I'm just going to give you three words, and you can go. Bassett versus Trump. <laughs> well, I, I'm always loath to to talk too much um, about Trump. <laughs> Gee, because why? in the last five years, he has tended to... I'm, I'm not making a political statement. Everybody's politics are their own. But even whether whether you're a diehard Republican or a die-in-the-wool Democrat, you have to admit the man sucks all the oxygen out of every topic. Mm. But you cannot tell the history of the USFL without Bassett v. Trump. You also cannot look at those battles and not think 30 years later the entire nation is going to be engaged in similar style battles uh, during the Trump presidency. There were lies, truth, truth misrepresented, and half-lies all throughout this battle. Um, Donald Trump comes into the league in 1984. He purchases the New Jersey Generals because um, the owner of the team, J. Walter Duncan, just wants out. He's an Oklahoma oil man, and he has no interest really in staying in New Jersey. He only took the franchise to help the league get started. And... Bassett is a big believer in a salary cap, in establishing spring as the season. You know, we build our business slowly, and over a few years, we will eventually get to the point where the NFL will have to 
uh, as absorb some of us and let us be NFL teams or allow us to continue in the spring, but somehow come in under the NFL umbrella as some kind of a minor league system or feeder system. Trump comes in and immediately wants to move the entire operation to the fall and compete head to head, um, believing that he could force the merger much more quickly and increase the value of all of the clubs. And so that fundamental difference between the two is always going to be at the heart of it. But what a lot of people don't appreciate and don't want to give enough credit for is the fact that Trump was not always an enemy of Bassett. The two of them actually had a lot in common. And I know, I know that made some people I interviewed uncomfortable when I would point that out, but they were, they're both the signs of very successful fathers. You know, um, Donald Trump's dad was a millionaire. Bassett's dad uh, was a millionaire. You know, they both were brought up in large empires, so to speak. Uh, they're both brash. They both know how to turn a quote. They both know how to get on both the front page and the back page of newspapers. Um, where they differ, though, is on their fundamental operating philosophy. Bassett was very blunt and honest and a straight shooter and always put the league first, whereas Trump was brash would pretty much say anything that needed to be said to get his way and would stab you in the back <laughs> the minute he, he felt you were of no more use to him. And so that starts this divide uh, because originally Bassett was very excited to see Trump come into the USFL because he saved the New York area franchise. And you cannot have a major sports league in the United States unless you have a significant presence in the New York area. And if Trump didn't come in, the USFL was going to lose that franchise. So they, they're friendly at first. But then when Trump starts advocating for getting rid of spring play, getting rid of salary caps, that's where it turns sideways. Neither side back down. United States Football League owners voted once again to play a fall schedule in 1986, and Tampa Bay Bandit's managing partner, John Bassett, said once again that the team won't be a part of that. The Bandits will withdraw from the USFL after this season, and Bassett will attempt to form a, quote, multi-sport league, unquote, USFL Commissioner Harry Usher announced after the owners' meeting here. Bassett said his league will involve golf, tennis, indoor soccer, and mini Olympics in addition to football, in the spring. Bassett says he will form a new multi-sport league that would include spring football and that he has 10 or 11 unnamed teams already committed. Details on the future of the Bandits and his new league will be provided in about three weeks when Bassett returns from a trip to Japan. Doug Spedding of the Denver Gold voted with Bassett to keep the USFL in the spring, and Spedding said he doesn't know what the next step for his team will be. The Gold owner also said that the, quote, 10 or 11 teams, unquote, already committed to Bassett's new project are in Chicago, Philadelphia, Miami, Detroit, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Denver, Los Angeles, Charlotte, Honolulu, Mexico City, and London, England. 
bettings that Bassett also wants to put teams in Rome, West Berlin, Paris, and several Canadian cities. He had said that he expected to win Monday's vote and keep the USFL in the spring, but on his way out of the hotel with the owner's meeting held, he said the outcome didn't surprise him. Nope, not a bit. There's nothing like peer pressure, he said. You've got a couple of guys in that room, and they can convince some other people to vote the wrong way, in my opinion. John Lettermoser, Tampa Bay Times, April 30, 1985. The big talk and big dreams were typical Johnny Bassett, but from the vantage point of history, it's mostly sad. He'd been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer in early 1985. The seriousness of his illness was not well known, but his general ill health was. Two months after he announced he'd be pulling his Tampa Bay Bandits from the ranks of the USFL for his multi-sport league, he'd have to admit to the press that, quote, I can't do it. It's not history, but I can't say it will happen for the spring of 1986, unquote. There would be no more schemes, no more rogue teams, no more fantastical leagues for Johnny Bassett. He tried to get his Tampa Bay franchise into the Canadian Football League, but CFL officials, likely recalling the political tussle of 12 years earlier, insisted they'd never take on a U.S.-based franchise. Though they did precisely this about 10 years later in the infamous CFL USA experiment. John Franklin Bassett ultimately lost his life with cancer on May 14, 1968, on the day opening arguments were heard in the antitrust case of USFL v. NFL. And almost exactly two months later, the Toronto City Council approved a street circuit for the Indy Toronto race the following year. The irony has been well noted. No team or organization that Bassett dreamed up in his 15 years of professional sports management still exists today. Strictly speaking, his most tangible contribution to North American sports was his discovery of a hockey wonder king and his subsequent insistence on having a Toronto Telegram sports reporter cover the 12-year-old hockey player in 1971, even offering the kid a two-year contract to play with his Birmingham Bulls six years later. But hey, you might have offered a 16-year-old a pro contract too if you'd discovered Wayne Gretzky. But like other MCs of entertainment, determining Johnny Bassett's influence and impact on our culture and sport today can be nebulous at best a decade after the spectacles he created ended. A goat of 20th century sports entertainment? Johnny Bassett was certainly that. Beyond this facile superlative, we'll have his biographer Dennis Crawford get in the last word. I just want it to be said that Johnny F. Bassett was a dreamer, but he was a very practical dreamer. And I think we all owe a debt of gratitude for those people who didn't necessarily win on the field, but without whose efforts, the games we love to watch today would be radically less than what they could have been. This has been True of the Goats, a Sports History Network podcast. Visit our website at trulythegoats.com. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at Truly the Goats. And check out the sportshistorynetwork.com headquarters for Sports Yesteryear for lots more like-minded podcasts. Our theme song is Fun on Street, greatest remix of all time, and is produced by David Liso of Dynamo Stairs. 
Other music used in this episode includes Rare Bird by Tab and Anitech, plus Acquisition and Outlandish, both by Anitech, and Spy by Eddie. All tracks are available by fair use agreement via freemusicarchive.org. Scott Joplin's The Entertainer, also used in this podcast, is in the public domain. Truly the Goats thanks our guest, author Dennis Crawford, excerpt from Dennis's book, The Life and Teams of Johnny F. Bassett, have been used by permission of McFarland Publishers. The book is available at McFarlandPub.com and the usual bookselling outlets that don't really need free publicity here. This is Oz Davis for Truly the Goats and the Sports History Network saying thanks for listening and reminding you to always keep perspective. Johnny F. Bassett is remembered, perhaps no other is more important than the simple fact that he dared to live his life to the fullest while doing so in a very open manner. Johnny F. Bassett dreamt big, and he invited people to come along with him, changing the trajectory of sports in the United States and Canada. Those that did were never the same and never forgot. To have that kind of influence is the hallmark of a life well-lived, and that is a life worth writing about.